So where are you today? Right this moment, are you in the car, at work, in the kitchen, out for a walk? What are you thinking and feeling right now? Are you happy, tired, sick, anxious? How does the truth that God is with you right now, right where you are, and that he understands your thoughts and feelings encourage you? Second Chronicles 16, nine tells us, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Let this sink in for a minute. Everywhere you are today, God's eyes are on you. His eyes are not glaring in condemnation. Instead, they are filled with tenderness, desiring to give you strong support. Let's savor his nearness as we hear stories of God's presence in the everyday, ordinary lives of women. Welcome to Everywhere You Are. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to try something a little bit different. The Everywhere You Are book discussion. It's sort of a conversation and it's sort of a book club meeting. We know that several members of our team love to read and we know that many of our listeners love to read. And so we're going to incorporate some book podcasts over the next few months. Our first selection is a nonfiction book by Elizabeth Elliott titled Shadow of the Almighty, The Life and Testament of Jim Elliott. When we had this discussion, Allison Powell and Lacey Middleton joined Becca Jenkins and myself, Rachel Langston, to discuss the powerful, timeless book about the life and martyrdom of missionary Jim Elliott. Enjoy the discussion. Hello, welcome back to Everywhere You Are. Today we have two guests with us, uh, Allison Powell and Lacey Middleton. And uh, before we jump in and explain what we're going to be talking about today, we just want to hear a little bit about each of y'all. So Allison, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Allison, I have been at Dawson pretty much my entire life with the exception of college and a few years in Memphis. Been married to David for 26 years dated for six before that. So I have two kids, Marshall, who's 23, and Mary Claire, who is 19, serve in the music ministry and all kinds of college ministry in different places. And just it's a big part of our life. Awesome. All right, Lacey, you want to go ahead? Uh, My name is Lacey, and I'm married to Brian Middleton, and we've got four kids. We've got Emma, she's seven, Ella, who's five, Michael, who's three, and Mabry, who's just turned a year. Um, And we've been going to Dawson, I guess, for about eight years now. Awesome. Uh, The Jenkins family overlaps with both of y'all's families a lot, and we are extremely grateful for the Powells and the Middletons. So today we're doing something a little bit different. We are going to be talking about a book that we all four have read and that we hope some of y'all will join us in reading this book. This is called Shadow of the Almighty. Uh, Essentially, it is a book that was comprised by Elizabeth Elliot. And if you never have heard of her, her husband was Jim Elliot, just a really well-known missionary to Ecuador. Should I give a little bit of context now? Sure. Okay. So so I'm just going to read a little bit from the back of the book, Shadow of the Almighty, because it does a good job of explaining. Uh, so the murder of Jim Elliott and four fellow missionaries by the Alka Indians in 1956 shocked the nation and motivated thousands to a life of service. 
Told by his wife, Elizabeth, the story of what led Elliot to the jungles of Ecuador has become a modern Christian classic. So she's drawing from his diaries and different letters that he actually wrote to her and to his family through the years and put all of those together to make Shadow, Shadow of the Almighty. The book End of the Spear, and there's also a movie End of the Spear, tells more about Jim Elliot and his fellow missionaries, more about their relationship with the Alka Indians and what that tragedy looked like. But this, again, is just more of kind of the background story of like how he got there and why he was so passionate about it and how the Lord cultivated that passion in him. So what were kind of some of y'all's first impressions of the book? It's very, it's kind of packed. Like there's, Mm -hmm. the type is small and (laughs) there's an awful lot of detail in the stuff that she uses that come out of his journals, which I think is somewhat interesting for a man to be as detailed as he was. But it also sometimes made it hard for me to read. Yes, the, the language was very flowery. And I didn't realize he was so into like classical, classic literature. Yes. Being an English major, you would have thought I would have remembered that about him, but I, I didn't. And so that was also interesting to like hear a man's writing be so flowery. <laughs> and I caught myself having to reread certain pages. I would yeah. get to the end and be like, okay, what did he say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel like his vocabulary was a little bit oh, more extensive word. than mine was. <laughs> so yeah. um, had I had more time, I probably would have had to go back and reread a lot of it. Yeah. I tend to read more stories like this in the context of a story. So I was glad I had read End of the Spear. Yeah. Even though it for- focuses, I think, more on Nate Saint. But okay. if I hadn't had that context for what his mission was, I think it would have been a really hard read because yeah. it is. And it is. I mean, there's a lot of flowery parts, but it also is kind of just the facts. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, this is this, this is this. And so... I tend to do better with a little more story connecting parts to parts. So um, that made it a little harder to read. It wasn't that it wasn't valuable, but it was definitely not like a quote, easy read. Like I started trying to read it at the beach and I had to just. Yeah, it's not really a beach (laughs) read. No, it's not a beach read. So we got that. Yeah, it was not a beach read. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I feel like, you know, sometimes between letters, there was a big gap of time and I kind of got lost about what had been happening and he'd refer back to stuff and I would forget what had happened. Yeah. Um, Also, a lot of the scripture references are the, I assume the King James version, because in the forties and fifties, I don't know that we had a lot of the translations that we do now. So there were times that some of the scripture I had to read a couple of times because it's like, wait a minute, what is that reference? So what were some of the aspects of the style or organization, or I'll add just content to that, that you did like? I just kind of an initial thought was like, I I liked the fact that we could see these journal entries and uh, letters in chronological order to see kind of his spiritual growth through the years, because you can definitely see it. (laughs) I definitely saw him growing a lot and just his discovery and understanding of what freedom in Christ looks like. I think Elizabeth, even she kind of writes like an extra, she provides a little bit of context in between some of the 
chapters where she explains his growth. It's on page 95 at chapter 10. She says, since high school days, Jim had judged his own conduct and probably the conduct of others by what he later called his code of don'ts. Late in his senior year of college, he began to see that this was contrary to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Furthermore, it was cutting him off from a certain percentage of the student body whom he wanted to know. So, you know, the first several chapters... You can definitely see that, I feel like, in his walk with the Lord and the way that he relates with his fellow college students. He defines his walk with the Lord by what he does not participate in, what he doesn't do. And the way he talks about his his fellow students a lot is just they shouldn't be doing this or a lot of don'ts. And so you can see towards the end, there is a shift. I think that the Lord shows him a lot of what Christianity frees us to do, to love other people. And then I, I remember towards the end, once he gets in the the culture of the, is it Quechua Indians? I don't know how you are supposed to say it. I was saying it Quechua. It's the scene where someone in that tribe passes away and they're having a funeral and the funeral looks very different from your stereotypical American Christian funeral. I think they're like dancing at one point and playing music and he is understanding of that and talks about how different cultures grieve in different ways and he was still open to just ministering to them in that funeral scene, even though it looks so different from what he was used to. And so I just felt like that was a really good representation of how the Lord had worked in his heart over the years and just helped him to to love and, and care for all different types of people. Yeah, I th- I, what you were saying, I think sometimes we think someone who becomes, you know, this devoted to this particular group, knowing the rest, knowing that, you know, I mean, he, he think that they must have been mature mm-hmm. always. And mm-hmm. it's encouraging to me to see that he wasn't mature, you know, he's very legalistic at the beginning and very much. And then that does cut you off from a whole, it doesn't mean you necessarily participate in things that are wrong, Mm -hmm. but you know, to just be like, I can't even talk to you because you feel like going to a football game is an okay thing to do. I mean, it was even things as, you know, that. And I remember years ago when our oldest Marshall made was going to make his profession of faith. And we went and talked to Dr. Fenton and Dr. Fenton was sitting on the floor talking to him face to face and then talked to us after, because, you know, your biggest fear as a parent is this really, is this true? Did they believe this? He was young. And, yeah. and I remember him saying, this is a starting point. You know, mm-hmm. this is the starting point and you'll spend the rest of your life moving more and more towards God. And I think that's what you see with Jim Elliott. And I think sometimes these quote heroes of the faith, we tend to put them up on this pedestal of yeah. almost not human, mm-hmm. you know, and forget that, you know, he did have to mature and grow in his faith to get yeah. to the, you know, he had that calling, but he still had to mature and grow to really minister effectively. Cause if he had gone, like you were saying, then to that funeral and refused to participate, that would have cut off that right. ministry area. And there was nothing wrong with what they were doing. It was just not what we typically do. Yeah. I think we're all more familiar with the end of the story than we are the beginning because we all know about, you know, the murder and the unreached people group and all of that. But seeing not only his relationships with people in college and having the really his own words, plus you get a pretty good insight into his relationship with his family in the first parts of the book. You can understand, I think, more of the legalism from knowing 
the family he grew up in, the culture he grew up in, the time that he grew up in in America where, you know, a lot more things were, there was stigma to a lot more things than there are, than there is today. So I liked being able to see a bigger picture of him than I think I've seen in, in the before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think kind of like y'all are saying, just seeing the journey and, you know, just seeing him as he's been praying and like seeing the Lord guiding him and knowing that it wasn't just like a one-time prayer and he got an answer. Like he was praying over years of where he was supposed to be and just even seeing him struggle through like certain decisions and really bringing that before the Lord. So I thought it was neat having the journal entries and the letters going back and forth as well. Early, you can see that he, he feels called to one of two people groups but he's not sure which one mm-hmm. and he seems open to either one, but he, but it, it's not a quick journey that gets him from Wheaton to Ecuador ultimately. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that was something that was really encouraging to me just to see his resilience and figuring out what exactly he was called to. And then, and actually getting there, it was years of waiting and he didn't even get to the, to Ecuador until I think it was like page 165, I think it was. So, I mean, that's the first 165 pages where he's just trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? How am I going to get there and praying about it? And right now, one of the closest parallels I kind of see to that in my own life and how it encourages me is just motherhood. I think that, (laughs) you know, motherhood is just a lot of, it's a long game (laughs) and you are planting seeds. And sometimes it's not even that you're just waiting to like see the fruit. You feel like literally someone's going in and digging those seeds back up and (laughs) throwing them over the fence or something. Um, It's a long game. And sometimes, you know, just wondering, Am I wasting my time here? But I was very encouraged by his season of waiting and how waiting didn't mean stagnancy for him. He was still very prayerful. He was he was seeking out ways to lead in the church and to teach and to serve. And so I think that was that was really encouraging. Well, and even in his waiting and even in his detours, so to speak, he never wavered in his confidence of what he was called to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I think is is certainly a lesson for us that it may not look like we thought it was going to look, but that doesn't mean that we aren't intended to do what we've yeah. what the Lord has told us to do. That's very good. I think sometimes if I I think that like if I am doing God's will, that means things should fall in place and that is just so wrong. <laughs> like think about the ministry of Paul and how he faced difficulty after difficulty and having to be lowered out of a window to escape the city and being bitten by a snake and in a shipwreck. And like, you know, he was still very confident that he was doing what the Lord had called him to do. Well, and going back to the timing, he spent much longer in preparation for his, for his time in Ecuador than he was actually there. Yeah. So, you know, we are, we're also focused on when I get to this or the next thing, or this isn't where I'm supposed to be. And yet, in his life, God used a way longer prep time than he did for what he was actually ministering. I think that's a good reminder for us that that time's not wasted. It's not wasted for us personally. And then think about all the people he ministered to leading up to that. You know, I think we do, we get focused on results and things and, 
you know, usually if you live long enough, you realize you're not going to see the results of most things. He had, he never saw the results of anything really that he did. That's really not even what God calls us to do. He just calls us to obey and then he handles the rest of it. And so, you know, I think that's an encouragement also when you feel like you're following his will and doing what he's asking you to do, but you don't see quote like results. And I think especially we're so, when we live in a high achieving area, a high functioning, you know, everybody's just, it's really hard not to, and you know, all through school, all through, okay, I need this goal. And then I need to make these grades and, you know, it's hard not to focus on, but the process is really just as important. And if you miss the process part, the achievements at the end really aren't worth anything. So Elizabeth Elliott can't have the ministry she has if he doesn't follow and do what he did. You know, in some, in a lot of ways, he paved ways for her to extend, not only finish what he started in Ecuador, but then extend around the world in her ministry. So were there any particular quotes that y'all had written down or underlined or anything that just made a big impression on you or encouraged you? But he said, I think the devil has made it his business to monopolize on three elements, noise, hurry, in crowds. If he can keep us hearing radios, gossip, conversations, or even sermons, he is happy, but he will not allow quietness for he believes Isaiah where we do not. Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. The voice of God, though persistent, is soft. And a little bit later, he says, let us resist the devil in this by avoiding noise as much as we can purposefully seeking to spend time alone, facing ourselves in the word. Satan is aware of where we find our strength. May he not rob us. And I just thought that was very convicting to me because, you know, with little kids and with all the things that are going on and it's hard sometimes to stop. And even when there's quiet, a lot of times I try to fill the quiet. Whereas, you know, that just was a good reminder to me that like the Lord is a still small voice and mm-hmm. I just stop and listen. And I do find that a lot of times when I do take the time just to stop and listen, that you do, you hear him and you hear yeah. his guidance. So that was an encouragement to me. I had underlined the exact same thing. I, had as well. yeah. <laughs> I thought it was crazy that he wrote that even before we had smartphones oh, like <laughs> how how much more so would he yeah. emphasize that today? you thought it was noisy then yes yeah yeah. Uh-huh. yeah I was I was thinking you know add screen time to that that list of things that he says to maybe just quiet down from and I just I thought about how you know in my elementary middle school in high school years, it was really before, that was all before I had an iPhone. And I remember having some sleepless nights where, you know, maybe I was having some sort of like struggle socially or things that I was working through. And I remember when I would have those like sleepless nights where it would take me a while to go to bed that I would, those are times when the Lord would really like work on my heart the most where I'm just sitting there in the silence. I don't have anything to look at. I shared a room with my sister, so I wasn't going to turn on the light and grab a book. Um, I would just have to sit there and a lot of times the Lord would lead me to, to prayer or I feel like he did a lot of work on my heart in those times of silence. Whereas now I feel like when I have a sleepless night, I typically grab my phone. So it just kind of made me ask the question of like, what am I robbing myself of with that extra noise going on in my life? So what do you have to do in your life right now to really have a totally quiet <laughs> moment. I don't know that there are any totally quiet. <laughs> nope. 
If you're a mom with littles at home, you like have to literally hide in your closet or something. Get everybody to nap at the same time. Um, When they're older, it really is push the phone away because I feel like as the kids get older, it's the text. We've talked a lot, David, I've talked a lot about that phones are great in some way. I mean, everything is good and bad and it's all Mm -hmm. how you use it. It is hard for me sometimes to feel the responsibility as a mom now that my kids are some of, you know, one's in a different state, you know, not to have it right there. So if they need me, I can respond. And A, they need to learn. Sometimes they can just wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes that thing you're texting about, you really probably should process on your own. But it's hard to push it totally away because yes. it might be needed. Right. And then it turns into you click this and then you're Whereas like, yeah. before we were moms, our moms were not available to us no. 24-7. no. You know, the reality is that 99 out of 100 of the texts are not, I need you for something. It's, I'm going to tell you something or don't forget, or I need you to send me whatever. And I'm guilty of if I have time and nobody's texting and I'm not on the phone and nobody's at the house or whatever, I'll turn on a podcast because I like to listen to stuff while I'm doing other things. And so I really have to make myself put everything away and turn off all the other noise and it's not all bad things that yeah, are no, not, not at all like the not at all can be encouraging spiritually or encouraging right wise or whatever but it is you know i do think satan's best i mean that that quote could have been written today yes yeah. but that's been true for since the beginning since the garden is that Satan's really best weapon is to distract us mm-hmm. and the easiest way i think to distract us is with noise and with noise of good things. Yeah. Um, and noise means different things in different eras for sure. But I think that was like the biggest takeaway that I got from this book is just being so encouraged by Jim and Elizabeth, Elizabeth's just eternal perspective on things and yeah. how, you know, I get so distracted by the busyness of what I'm doing at home, whether it's like making my kids comfortable, which really is not the biggest achievement in life. Like sometimes they need to be uncomfortable, <laughs> but just remembering like spreading the news of the kingdom of God is my mission here on earth. And, you know, a lot of times you just get distracted by that because there's so many other things that are going on. But that was, I feel like just the biggest thing for me, was just that reminder not only that, but just their constant time in the word and their prayer. Like, I feel like, you know, Pastor David going through, you know, the fundamentals of what we believe as a church. Like when I, when he was talking about that, I was reading this too. And, you know, I was like, oh my goodness, that's just the truth. Like we need to be in his word and we need to be in prayer. And when I thought too, because of all of the times of quiet that Jim had, he was able to actually write all of this stuff down, which was able to then be an encouragement to generations after. And then also, you know, I'm sure just so important for Elizabeth to, to be able to look back and see his faith journey. And I feel like just the fact that we even have this book is so encouraging and a a testament to what the Lord can do through the times where we just sit uh, quietly and and meditate and reflect and let him work on our hearts. Mm -hmm. I am in awe of anybody. And in, in this story, both he and Elizabeth have such a really strong discipline of making commitments to do certain things and then following through with them no matter the cost obviously ultimately the cost for him was his was his death but even before that you know he was very disciplined as a student his relationship with elizabeth was extremely disciplined and you don't you don't have any question that her 
place in his life came below his relationship with the Lord. And that's not always a picture that we see, even in Christian marriages. I think at times it comes across in some ways as almost harsh or not really sweet, like we would say, you know, like not loving, but in a way the discipline really gives him the opportunity to totally put all of his relationships, all of his possessions, all of his everything in the right perspective. But how did y'all, I couldn't really figure out if there was a hard and fast reason why he kept waiting to propose to her or if it was just like he just didn't feel like it was right or was he trying to protect her from going on the mission field or like? There were times when I read it that I thought, It just wasn't part of the plan he had in his head of how ministry was supposed to look. Like if he was going to this dangerous place, he didn't need to take her with him. But she was obviously committed to the mission field and whatever he felt led to also. So there were times where I wanted to be like, dude, you're talking yourself out of this. She's ready to go. Yes, God is not. God is not. You know, and then you get to the part where he talks about that being alone there and she's not there. And why do I feel this way? I'm like, because you love her. <laughs> right. And But what could she even do if she was there? I'm like, she would just be there. And once you're married, you understand part of life is just having that person to walk through with yeah. it. A parts of me thinks that was a maturity kind of issue for him, which you don't need to get married until you're mature enough to do it. There are times when I think there was a lot of time wasted that they could have been together encouraging each other. Yeah, I, I just, I, there was a part of it. I was like, you're making this way harder than it needs to be. You know, I wondered if it was, and maybe this goes back to the maturity, but I wondered if he was, he didn't want to commit because he wasn't sure he could give the marriage the time and energy it took because he was so committed to the other. Yeah. And I don't know if that really was true, but early on when he wrote there, several, some of the things he wrote, I thought, well, I think he's just trying, he doesn't want to do either one badly. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, It kept reminding me of like a TV show or a movie where you're just, the writers are just leading you along. You're right. You're like rooting for this couple to get together. Remind me of Jim and Pam on the office. (laughs) You're waiting multiple season. You're like, come on. (laughs) And then they finally get together. Well, then you can tell once they're married, it's, um, you think there, you can tell there's almost a little of like, why did I not? Why did we? Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I do think some of that was with his legalism, even when he talks like that early writing, he talked about a wedding and everything being stupid, basically. (laughs) And like, I get that. I get that. And yes, currently weddings are out of control in a lot of ways. But there is also something like, I mean, remember when we got married long, you know, 26 years ago. I mean, part of our goal was this needs to be a worship service. And there are people who will come to this service who will never walk in a church for any other reason. Right. And it can be held in the correct perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the maturity part for him is that not everything that he considered worldly is bad. It's all the perspective you have. Um, It made me laugh because you could tell in certain entries by the first few sentences if he was in a mood. Like, like, okay, Jim's about to go get on the soapbox. (laughs) There was what I I wrote it down on page 138 where he was talking about people in Portland. He said, I wish these couples would stop piddling around with jobs and houses and babies. And I was like, babies are important, man. (laughs) And uh, I think he was just in a mood that day. And you have to have a job to feed that family to then be able to, yeah. Um, One of the quotes that I really liked was on page 184. He was talking about, he was 24 at this time. So it said, I read Job 1210 again in his hand 
the life of every living thing. I recognize all I am and have is the Almighty's. He could be in one, He could in one instant change the whole course of my life with accident, tragedy, or any event unforeseen. Job is a lesson in acceptance, not of blind resignation, but of believing acceptance that what God does is well done. So, Father, with happy committal, I give you my life again this morning, not for anything special, simply to let you know that I regard it as yours. Do with it as it pleases you. Only give me great grace to do for the glory of Jesus Christ whatever comes to me in sickness and health. And I just thought, hey, that was a great perspective on Job because usually we hate to read Job. I mean, you just do. It's hard to read. But I thought, what a great thing that, you know, no matter what God throws our way, I can accept it. I don't have to just resign myself to it, but I can accept it. But I can still use that for his glory. And I really need to pray that prayer every day. Like when he said, nothing special today. And most of life is not this big, magnificent, go reach this unreached people group. A lot of life, especially when your mom at home with littles, it's just the daily Mm. thing. But those daily things that you do for your family or you do for your church family or your responsibilities, those are part of ministry, the discipline. And like you're talking about, they had so much discipline. The discipline of doing, you know, things is important. And I don't know, that just was. Um, well, and I love the next phrase after not for anything special, simply to let you know that I regard it as yours. How often do we think, all right, Lord, here's my plan for what I'm going to do. Now, if you'll just jump in here and, mm-hmm. and help me do it instead of saying, I know my life is yours. So tell me what you want me to do today. One of my favorite quotes from the whole book ties in really, I mean, it's the same idea. It was one page 91 says, one does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. I love that. Um, I thought that that was so short, concise, but packs a punch. I feel like I need to write that on an index card and put it up around my house. (laughs) Especially on your long motherhood days. Yes. You and Lacey both still have a lot of those ahead of you. Those Um, days are long, but the years are short. Yes. Sure. Yes. Another thing that I feel like was kind of convicting to me, and I've been really like thinking about how, I don't know, to kind of address this with my kids. I feel like my kids, but just teaching them to have an attitude of gratitude has been a thing that I've really been wanting to start, you know, making sure I'm on top of with them, just because I feel like a lot of times they just feel like it's expected. I should have this. I should get this. Or, you know, grandparents come and give them something special. You know, it's kind of like, oh, it's mine. They gave it to me. And it's like, well, let's say thank you. They didn't have to. But that was another thing that I feel like, you know, when they were out in the jungle and, you know, had very minimal things, just a grateful, you know, he would write to his parents. And he would just, you know, he was like, we have everything we need, you know, and he was like, we're doing great. They really didn't have much at all, but he was so grateful for what he had. So that's something that I feel like right now, like I said, I'm trying to, you know, instill in my children is like, we don't have to give you all this stuff. Right. This is wanting to give you good things, but, you know, just having an attitude of gratitude and just being grateful for those things. I'm actually starting to read a book right now. It's Raising Grateful Kids in an Entitled World. I don't know. I feel like it's it's tied in pretty well after reading this, kind of just recognizing all the things that the Lord has blessed us with and like not expecting it, I guess. That's, I've been trying to cultivate and really in myself too, just an ability to be thankful for and take joy in just simple things that the Lord has provided. And I really loved the poem that was on page 71. It says, heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs overflow, flowers with deeper beauty shine. 
as now I know I am his and he is mine. I guess I just really loved that idea of knowing Christ, making everything, even the simple things that are free and that we get to walk around and enjoy every day just makes them more beautiful. I feel the same way. I've been really trying to taking our boys on walks more and like pointing out certain things that are are beautiful and asking them to describe them to me just to kind of increase their awareness of it. Because I I think with like screens and stuff, it it seems to Thomas like everything has to be super hype and like huge for it to be good. But no, like we are thankful for even the simple things that the Lord provides. You're talking about the poem is really about nature. And I really do that best in nature. And a lot of times when I'm in nature is when I'm away from the phone and stuff because I'm not going to carry it on a hike. And so that's like our family trips that have been my favorites have been like national parks and things like that. Like we did Utah in May and hiked outside and spent so much time outside. And you're in all these places that look so different. Parts of Utah look literally like the set of Star Wars or something. And, you know, we talked a lot about how like, God didn't have to make the world like that. He could have just made it plain and boring, but he made all these different things that are visually, and Mary Claire's real artistic, so she gets into the colors and the, but you just see all that and you just are so thankful for a God who created things beautifully and creatively. And I think, and then you're grateful for it. And I think the gratitude part, you know, none of us, I think are innately good at that because we're selfish and, you know, we all are born selfish. And so it is something you have to work on. And, and you know, they, they need perspective. So sometimes yeah. the gratitude only comes down the road from perspective. And, you know, when you're little, your perspective is about 20 minutes long. <laughs> so, um, But it is, I think it's a reminder that it's an effort for us, too, as an adult. When I get ungrateful is when I get really grouchy. And for me, really, the cure for that for me literally is to walk out the front door in the fresh air. And that kind of self-corrects it. So with your kids, you noticed a big shift in that when they went off to college, which that was kind of the biggest. Yes. And they had always been, I mean, neither one of them cares a ton about stuff. Neither one of them cares about brands, you know, that kind of stuff. So that was kind of a gift to yeah. us. And, and sometimes it's hearing them talk to other people. Like they may not say it to you, but we all get our hair cut by the same lady and she'll tell us later, oh, Marshall was saying how excited he is about this trip coming up. And we're like, oh, awesome. <laughs> you know, and you don't necessarily hear it. But, but even when they were little, I think not remind them all the time, but like even with gifts at Christmas, like we always made the kids write thank you notes. And I mean, that seems silly to write a thank you note to your grandparents who live across the highway and mail it. But I was like, someone took the time to pick out something that you would love. And so we're going to take the time to thank them for that. I think just reminding them to do that, not that it becomes this horrible obligation, but it, and then they start to catch on and do it more on there. Yeah. I think it's interesting that talking about the beauty and the nature and all that, even that goes back to like distraction. Yeah. Because, you know, how often do we drive by the same beautiful tree every day or whatever and don't notice it or just because we're not paying attention and it's so much of the the distraction and the focus on something, the screen, the technology, the whatever I'm, you know, get to the next, got to get to the next place instead of, Oh, it feels really nice today. Or I like listening to the sound of the rain on the roof kind of thing. If you were going to recommend this book, would you recommend it to somebody that loves history? Would you recommend it? Even if you're not a Christian, I can see some interesting things in this book that you would enjoy. 
I think if you're a brand new believer and you were looking for an encouraging book on the Christian faith, this would not be it. Yeah, I wouldn't start here. A, like we've said, the language is just tricky and stuff. You know, I don't know if I would start with that. Or if you did, I would read it with, like, have it be like a discussion, like meet kind of back and talk through. I, I agree with you. If you are, like, someone who really enjoys history and enjoys that kind of thing, I think there's some definitely interesting parts you would find I mean, I would recommend it, but like I said, it's just, it's not the story like I'm used to reading, but that's, I probably need to challenge Can you imagine going, can you imagine going into this book totally cold, like not knowing? That's what I'm saying. If I hadn't read Into the Spear, I would have been like, what? What Like if you've never heard of either of these two people, but you just read the back, I can't imagine being interested or even finishing it. Well, that's kind of our running joke with both our kids is context because they are both really bad about just sending a text or telling something with zero context. (laughs) And I have no idea what they're talking about. And so that was, I guess what I kind of thought, if you want this book to appeal to a wider audience, there's a little context at the beginning of chapters. It wouldn't have taken much, just like a paragraph Mm -hmm. that would help, Mm -hmm. but that's okay. That's not how she chose to write it. She wanted it just to be his word. I would say, if you don't know this story at all, read one of the other books on it first. Yeah, Yeah. don't go into it not knowing who they are. I think it's interesting, the relevance of so much of what Jim Elliott wrote in his journals. Obviously, scripture continues to be relevant. And I'm always amazed at how how much that is true, given how drastically different our cultures are today. That was another thing that like was convicting to me was just how much scripture he knew. Because, I mean, she talked about how much he quoted scripture, but he wouldn't necessarily like put the verse in his journal entries or his letters. But that was something that I was like, I really need to be more committed to. It's like learning the word. I mean, he just speaks it out. That's why for me, music is that like with the scripture, like I have a struggle memorizing scripture, just like to memorize it. But if I can sing it, I can remember it. You know, that's why I still love teaching preschool choir, because we teach those Bible verses and I mean through song and those kids know them that like whatever you do whether in the Lord or do you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus we sing that song and they know it and I'm telling you I know that verse better because I've been teaching preschool choir there are so many ways to learn scripture but for me that is the way that then those come songs come back when I need them and it's the script like come unto me all ye that labor and I will give you rest we sang that when I was in chapel choir I mean, literally just the words of scripture. That's why I'm grateful for a church that cares about the songs we sing to as much as the words we Mm -hmm. study, because it's all pointing back to Jesus. Have you read Shadow of the Almighty? If so, we would love to know your thoughts and your comments, and we'd love to know what you thought about our conversation. You can email podcast at DawsonChurch.org or comment on the post you see on social media about this episode. Roald Dahl, the famous children's author of several books, penned this delightful rhyme. So please, oh please, we beg, we pray, go throw your TV set away. And in its place, you can install a lovely bookshelf on the wall. While it would be extreme to rid our lives of TVs and smartphones, we hope you'll join us in the coming months as we read and discuss a few of our favorite books. Watch on social media in the Dawson Women's Ministry Facebook group to see upcoming selections and book club podcasts. See you next time.